This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Libney, CEO and founder of Verbit, an AI-powered transcription platform that's raised over $600 million in funding. Tom, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Looking forward to our episode today. Not a problem. And I'm super excited as well. So when I was doing my research, I found that you spent some time in the Israeli Defense Force or the IDF. So I'd love to start there. What did you learn from your time in the IDF? Oh, what have I learned? I learned that resiliency is definitely the most important thing in the entrepreneurial journey. So I've been in the special forces of the paratroopers. Uh, participated in the last four wars and operations, killed during the reserve, then definitely uh, I got my lesson in resiliency and it's really shaped me as an entrepreneur today. When you were in the IDF, did you always have the idea in the back of your mind that you were going to be a founder and you were going to be an entrepreneur someday? You know, at the army, I learned that it's hard for me when I have a boss and when I I get some orders which I disagree, right? So it was really tough for me, you know, when I, believe in something and, you know, I ask, why should I do it? And then they don't have a real answer. So it was tough. But also my first entrepreneurial experience started in the, you know, when I was in high school. So back then, you know, I never like thought it would really be a, you know, official job to be an entrepreneur, etc. Today you have schools here in, in Israel for entrepreneurship, right? So today it's really a, a skill. Right. So, but uh, if you ask me back then, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I would imagine I'll be where I am today. I always dream big, but uh, I wasn't like my dad was also independent, right? A lawyer. So I was inspired by him to be my own boss. Let's put it this way. And then when did you found your first company? It looks like it, the company was App Insight. Is that correct? Yeah. Like I had a lot of, let's call it unsuccessful kind of trials before, not necessarily in tech to start businesses, et cetera. But the first real one was up inside, yeah, another tech company before Verbit. So this was the first one. I was like 27, I think 28. And then what came after that was Convexum. And it looks like that was acquired. Is that correct? Convexum, I was investors and board member. I didn't, uh, was a founder and like really after up inside I started Verbit, which I'm still the CEO today. A few other questions we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an operator. What founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Well, there are many questions. So I think my skill as a founder is uh, you know, the storytelling, right? To be able to articulate a vision and a dream and to be able to attract either investors or other talents to join the journey and, uh, and to build what we built at Verbi. A really uh, cool, like inspiring founder for me was uh, Walt Disney, right? So I saw the document, the doco on Walt Disney for episode, and I was really admired by, by how he had the dream and, and think big, etc. and look at this, what is Disney today, right? So I really think I remember I watched this doco in the early days and it's really, uh, you know, allowed me to be flexible with my mind and like to like that the sky is not the limit and, and again to dream big. 
Another question we like to ask is about books. And there's an author in the US called Ryan Holiday or named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core and it just ends up really influencing how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? Yeah, The Alchemist of Paulo Coelho is uh, my favorite around this one. That's got to be in the top five most recommended books that we have on the show. Everyone loves that book. And I, I just finally read it about two months ago. And it's such a such a fascinating read. I love it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, books about the Torah and Judaism, etc. And uh, also really likes because I'm obviously Jewish. And, uh, you know, recently to start reading those kind of book and what you learn that you have all all the answers in the history. So you don't need to be smart and to invent in yourself. For those of us non-Israel, can you just paint a picture of what the Israeli tech ecosystem looks like today? And then can you tell us maybe how has it evolved over the past 10 years when you really started building companies? Well, so the Israeli ecosystem really evolved recently. And if you think about unicorn per capita, right? We are now in the Unicorns Builder podcast. In terms of unicorns per capita, Israel is ranked number one in the world by far before... um, you know, Singapore is high on the list and then U.S. is high on the list, but uh, definitely. So I think the ecosystem we, we built, so we, Israel exists for 75 years, right? And all this country is basically a miracle because we are surrounded with enemies. And I think the army is really what, uh, you know, allow us to be where we are like the startup nation or the unicorn nation. Then... Uh, we have like at the peak of the bubble, let's call it over 100 unicorns, but let's call it half of it, like 50 that really deserve this status, which I say above $100 million in annual return revenue. So I think the, what allows us to be the where we are today is a combination of few things. One is, 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 as I said, obviously the, the army and, and the talent that it produced then. It's the academy, right? We have many universities like Technion, Reichman universities, Lviv University, etc., that allow us to have the brightest minds. And then it's the support of the government. We are all the time like keep funding from the government to allow this ecosystem to evolve. And then it's uh, we have all the T1 venture capital firms in the world, right? So we have like Bessler, Lightspeed, Insight, etc. They all have offices here. I live in Sarona. And they all have offices here in the Sarona area. I call it the Israeli Sandhill Road now. And look, if you think about $31 billion-ish dollars that was invested in 2021, which was the peak of the bubble, so then a lot of also local VCs, et cetera, that's supporting like companies like Verbit in the early days to really allow us to dream big and build the unicorns that we have today in Israel. So I think that the capital that we have around us from all the venture capital, I think it's also the repeat founders, right? So we we have the, the community here and we work in collaboration. We don't compete against each other, right? Unless it's like, uh, you know, companies like Papaya Global and Deal, they're really competing each other to Israeli unicorns, right? But like in general, all the the Israeli founders are really supportive to each other and try to enhance each other and, and help each other. And we build a community of knowledge sharing. So I think, uh, you know, all this combined with the army, as I said, it really allow us to grow so fast and then to evolve in the last 10 years as you said, from, you know, the startup nation to the scale-up nation to attract you know, all the big uh, VCs to have local presence here in Israel. 
You know, in 2016, I read that book, Startup Nation, and and no joke, I booked a flight and, and flew to Israel. I think it was like two weeks later. I ended up spending like 10 or 12 days there, had, you know, 20 or 30 meetings with founders. And it's such a fascinating ecosystem. The culture there is amazing. And everyone was just very welcoming, very open to collaboration. And everyone was just very entrepreneurial. And I, I love Israel. I love Tel Aviv. I think it's such a special place. Yeah. Next time you're here, let me know. And if I may add another thing, all the big tech giants, they have offices here. If you like to think about Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Apple, everyone have local R&D offices in Israel. So all the big tech technology firms, they have local presence. So take this combined with what we build in terms of the early stage and the startups. So all of this fuels all the time, more innovation and more technology. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So unlike a lot of your colleagues who are in the IDF, uh, you didn't go out and start a cybersecurity company, or at least this one isn't a cybersecurity company. It looks like your first one was. So what happened there? I, I feel like that's the path that most people in Israel follow is they, they start a cybersecurity company and, and that becomes the company, but that's not what you've built, right? No, Verbit is a totally different uh, animal. We are the world's largest AI-powered transcription platform run voice-to-text and making the world more accessible. But like, if you want, I can give like a few sentences about my first entrepreneurial experience. So this was a very interesting journey. So I worked uh, as an associate in Lumitech, is the technology arm of Bank Lumi, the biggest bank in Israel. And then I got approached by the guy that was my co-founder and up inside and tried to raise money from, from us from Lumitech. And I told him, if you're a single founder, you know, it would be really hard for you to raise money. And if you approached us, you have no idea who you should approach you to in uh, the Israeli ecosystem. You should go to angel investors, accelerators, incubators, or early stage VC, not to like big bank that do LP investment in fund or late stage funding or venture lending, etc. So, and then he offered me to join him. I was really excited to cross the journey to the other side to be an entrepreneur. And uh, I went for it, and uh, yeah, it was a very sad story, but, uh, you know, Verbit is, is more happy while, so we should focus on this one. <laughs> and what happened then in 2017? Where did this idea or Verbit come from? Yeah, so I'm, in my career, I was a lawyer, right? No one is perfect, right? So please don't hold it against me. But <laughs> the good thing of being a lawyer was that uh, I saw how much time and how much money we're spending on the transcript of the legal deposition, right? And every time we changed the vendors because they were not accurate. And then I found myself sitting down and doing the editing job myself. Right? So I was really, really frustrated customer. And then when I said to myself, you know, I should look for more innovative solution, right? Than something more technological. And I was looking for one. I didn't find any and said, maybe I should invent it myself. And this was the idea around Verbit. I remember this was around 2011, right? 2011. And uh, I played with the voice recognition technology back then. I saw it's not mature enough because I read that if the AI output is around less than 80% accuracy, it's better to do it from scratch. And then in 2011, it was not the accuracy of the voice, voice to text technology was not there. And then I was always had it in my mind. Then I was the, had the experience with up inside and, you know, my co-founder got sick and then I decided to give back the money to the investors and shut down the company. And then turns out like the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, when I started the business. 
And then I played again with the voice to tech technology. I realized with the cloud compute and the deep learning, et cetera, now was the right timing to start, uh, you know, Verbit. And then there is this history, right? Today we over 1,000 employees and almost 4,000 customers, right? So and it was a hell of a journey in the last six and a half years to build this company. Where did you develop that level of patience? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of founders struggle with that, right? Where you see a problem, you have an idea, but then you have to be able to tell yourself, hey, it's too early, I, I have to come back to this. It kind of reminds me of James Cameron. I think it was Avatar where he did that too, right? Where he had the idea for it in the 90s. He said, oh, technology isn't all the way there. I have been to shelve this idea and come back. And then he eventually obviously came back and, and did Avatar. But it sounds like for you, you were able to do that as well, right? Where you had the idea and you were able to delay starting it until the technology was ready? Yeah, it was more luck than brain, right? So I just had my gut feeling that, you know, it's too early when the AI output was not accurate enough. And then fast forward six years after, you know, I started for a bit and I remember now you remind me an article when I got interviewed after like we were chosen as one of the three most promising startup in Israel to watch. So they did an interview. So then I told them the, the founding story of Verbit, and this was the headline. I got the idea in 2011. I started to execute six years after and look where we are today. In those early days, were there any people who doubted this idea and you know, tried to say, Tom, do something else, you know, go focus on a, a different problem. Did you experience that early on? I think my parents was like, my father is also a lawyer, right? And he has a big law firm and he dreamed that we, we can work together. So all the time, oh, leave all this uh, startups bullshit you telling yourself and uh, because you're a lawyer, work as a lawyer, why you need this thing, you can inherit like your dead law firms, et cetera. So, but, uh, you know, I'm a, a builder, not like a lawyer. I think you're more as a liar, right? Like all the time need to lie for a client, et cetera. So I'd rather to build than rather not to lie, right? So. Can you give us an idea of the scale that the company operates at today? Yeah, as I mentioned, over 1,000 employees, almost 4,000 customers, hundreds of millions of ARR, uh, growing. We did uh, six acquisitions so far. We raised, as you said, over $600 million. Value last valuation was uh, $2 billion. So yeah, it's been a hell of a ride so far. So take us back to the day that that deal signed. So it was, looks like it was a $250 million Series E at $2 billion valuation. What was that day like for you? You know, back in those days, I said, okay, it's another uh, milestone in the journey. And we all the time got term sheets from SPACs at $5 billion. So I was like, really? Okay, we should go to $10 billion, et cetera. You know, today it's still my goal, but I understand it's going to take us much more time to go. Back then I was like, okay, we're going to be in next year or in two years, 10 billion. So I was like, okay, it's another good milestone, but it's just the beginning of the journey. And I have more responsibility, more commitment to new investors in high valuation, et cetera. So, but yeah, so, so today we were lucky to have like funding, get the funding at the peak of the bubble at, uh, November 21. And uh, yeah, we, we were well capitalized to execute on the opportunity we have at Verbit because it's a $30 billion transcription market, right? So think about this podcast, right? If you're a deaf person or hard of hearing and you want to enjoy from this content, you need to have a proper transcript of it because you can hear my terrible Israeli accent, right? So to get it into AI, 
it won't give you 100% for sure, right? So then we make all this verbal information accessible at Verbit. It's a huge market and we still have a big opportunity ahead of us and we're heads down and focusing on execution. You mentioned SPACs there, obviously in 2021 and maybe in early 2022, you know, SPACs were just booming every month. There were like, what, 10, 15, 20, 30 SPACs, which was crazy. And then they were all desperately hunting for deals. Was it hard to resist that temptation to do a SPAC deal and to go public? Was it hard? Oh, very hard thing. They offered you, you know, 100 million cash secondary just for you as a founder, like trying to bribe you in a way. Yeah, it was really hard. Like five billion valuation and north of it, good sponsor. You know everything seems like a dream, and then you say, "But I know I I don't worth five billion." And look where all those packs traded to that. So I'm happy that we didn't do it. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. It's painful looking at some of the specs because what do they go for? It starts off at $10, right? And I think most of them now are like under a dollar and there's, you know, they're being threatened that they're going to be delisted. So sounds like you made the right choice. Yeah. Yeah. Cannot complain. God is uh, keeping me safe. You know, how'd you make that decision? Cause that has to be hard, right? You have a hundred million dollar bribes coming your way. You know, we don't want to say bribes, but you know, joking, obviously there, you know, hundred million dollars. That's tempting for anyone, $5 billion valuation or more. Like, how do you say no to something like that? That can't be easy. Yeah. I'm lucky that we have like really professional, strong board of directors. Right. So when we review it, we said, yeah, but then, you know, we, we need to have a strong fundamental to support it, et cetera. And, um, you know, we realized that, uh, we, we are not ready as a company. We say, okay, we need to keep executing like one or two more quarters. And if the spark's there, you know, there's so many of them, so we can go. And now, like, you start to see, like, they're dying one after another, and they're all desperate to do a deal and, and still trying to see if there is um, interest from... I'm getting still once a week, right? Like, interest from SPAC to list Verbit or dispack Verbit. And, uh, you know, now we obviously understand that this is not the right vehicle for us. We're going to go in the front door where we're going to be ready. And, yeah, this is the situation right now. I think the clock's ticking for all the SPACs, right? I think they have 24 months from when they raise. So I'm sure for a lot of them, they're uh, they're feeling some pressure right now. Very much, yes. Are you excited about the prospect of someday being a public company CEO? Yeah, obviously it's fun. We just had like last week, the Jeffries conference in Israel. They did an amazing job, brought all the top decision makers from like big private equity, strong crossover funds. So yeah, being there in the room, talking about a big ambitious plan, you know, put you in the spot and uh, yeah, so I, I enjoy it. It's, it's a learning experience for me. I do it all for the very first time. And I like to like uh, extend the boundaries of me as a CEO, pushing the, the limits there. And, you know, I think if I need to give any good advice for like to the listeners early days, so when I do my own investment right now, because today I'm also angel investor in, in startup and a board member and investing in as an LP in funds, et cetera. You know, the first thing I'm looking at is, you know, how 
being the CEO of things, like is the CEO is a barrier for the company? And if so, I would never invest. And if I think this CEO is coachable, he's flexible, he, he knows how to get criticism, he's humble, he's hungry, he's committed, right? Those are the characteristics I'm looking in founders. So if I see that, then, you know, really, and then people that I would enjoy working with and spend more time. So then, you know, always interested to back great entrepreneurs. So those are the things I'm, I'm looking at. If you're looking at big visions from these entrepreneurs, what's the balance there? Is there a, a vision that's just too big where they could come and present to you and you say, no, sorry, guys, you're, you're a bit too delusional here. Or for you, is it the bigger the vision, the better, as long as their qualification? Sure. I, I love big visions, but then, you know, I'm also an operator, right? So you cannot bullshit me and then, okay, but like, let's put it in reality. How are we going to execute on the plan? How much money we need to raise? Which is the first segment of the vertical? We're going to go after how big it is, where's the competitive landscape, et cetera. And then you really kind of can determine it's at the company you, you'd like to back or just a fluffy big dream and a big vision. Etc. So, you know, I always try to, how are we going to execute on, on this big vision? If you look at your own personal traits, what's your superpower? What are you just world-class at? Fundraising. Where'd that skill come from? Is it from the time being a lawyer or where does that skill come from to be just a, a fundraising I, I, machine? I think I'm gifted because think about it. I, I raised over 600 million uh, in my career and without any bank, right? Usually you go hire a banker, blah, blah, and the, those amounts... Even single dollar with without a broker, right? So, uh, so I think it's it's a gift. I think you can work on it, and then, but yeah, you need to really understand the ecosystem, how investors think, right, etc. And now, uh, to be honest, once you're an LP in fund, so you really understand, and that they respect you much more. So then the conversation is more equal, and and then it's more around how to to create the narrative and control the process, right? Because eventually, investors are you know, they have this formal effect. And then if you really know how to run the process well, et cetera, and get everyone aligned beforehand and, and build relationships, et cetera. So, because if you appear in the first meeting, okay, give me 100 million, not going to work. You need to build a relationship and they need to know your business. And then once you want to, you know, go for the fundraising, you need to start and make sure you have all the collaterals and the materials ready, and then just kick off a real quick and efficient process. So... I found myself getting a lot of inbound interest from entrepreneurs about how should I approach this role, let's build a fundraising strategy, et cetera, which funds do I need to approach, which partners. So it's a whole theory that we can have another episode around fundraising. So if the audience will be interested, maybe we can allocate more time for that. When you look at the success you've had fundraising, what role has storytelling and, and narrative played in that? Has that been kind of like the, the critical oh, pillar there? This is the number one to be likable as a founder, but then you need to pick it up with numbers if you have like good growth numbers supporting your story. And then I, I again, I had the perfect time, right? Starting 2017 and then like COVID and COVID, it's all about digital transformation and Burbit is in the core and the center of digital transformation. Right. So then our business grew dramatically. We did acquisition and we have excited internal investors that just want to increase their holdings. Right. So, you know, we were lucky, but also, you know, uh, again, the metrics make sense. It's the $30 billion town. You're the category leader. You're growing so fast. You have like the best technology. We invested over $100 million 
in R&D over the years for Verbit. We have the best out there, even today with all the Whisper and all the Gen AI out there, still the best, you know, technology. So this puts us in the front, forefront of the innovation. And, and still there's a lot of interest in what we do. When it came to building out that narrative early on, and then also just today, how do you approach storytelling and building the story? Do you have a team that you work closely with where you go out and map out what the story is and then get everyone to memorize it and internalize it? Or what does that look like internally for you? I think, you know, again, as the CEO, you need to be the best salesman of the company in my point of view. So as a salesperson, if I do my job as a CEO to sell our equity, our shares to investors, so then it's all about the storytelling. Then if you want to sell it to a university like Stanford or Harvard or a broadcaster like CNN or Disney, all of them are very big customers, by the way. So then you need to tailor it to their uh, needs, right? And if you want to sell it to an employee, right? So then we are doing good. We have people with disabilities, right? To enjoy verbal information, right? So, and this is part of our values as a company, right? To do good, win together and collaborative intelligence. So, so then you need to really be crisp on who you're selling, right? You're selling to an employee, you're selling to a customer, I'm selling to a potential investor, right? So. So then it's all different stories. I think, again, because I'm the founder, I'm the CEO, I'm the, you know, the spirit behind this company. They always want to see me. So when I'm in investors, it's mainly me and I have our strategy team that constantly helping me to shape this story and to adapt it. Now we have a whole new Gen AI strategy as a company. So we're building our narrative around that. So you need to be adaptive and and to change it uh, on the fly and, and based on the company progress, right? So the, the seed story is not like the pre-IPO story as we are right now, right? So it's all different. And again, for customers, obviously different and for employees is obviously different story. When I was doing research for this interview, I just found a, a large volume of podcast interviews, media interviews, and, and you've really put yourself out there. You know, it's very clear you are the spokesperson for the company. Some founders I speak to, how they talk about it is they say, I want to be behind the scenes. I just want to build product. I don't want to be out there. I don't want to be the face. But it sounds like you've taken a very different approach. You're very much the face. You've been out there. And it sounds like you've been doing that for a long time. How important has founder branding been in your success, would you say? Look, I think for good and for bad, you know, I'm the company and the company is me in a way, right? So I, I love Verbit. It's going to be most likely the most Hopefully not, but seems like it for now that like the biggest legacy in terms of companies that I've built over the years, uh, I was lucky it was in my second uh, experience, second real one. I think, look, if you look at the statistic, right? So all the founder led company, they're the most successful one, right? If you look at uh, Jeff Bezos in Amazon, Bill Gates in Microsoft and Mark Zuckerberg in Facebook. So those are founder led companies, right? So all the biggest success come from the founder-led company. And, uh, you know, as long as I enjoy doing that, and uh, I will keep doing that, and as long as the board wants me. Right? But again, to your question, so it also depends. If I said, okay, let's look at, you know, the guy from LinkedIn, right? So he brought uh, Jeff to replace him because he didn't want to be a public company CEO or like in that scale, Reid Hoffman, right? So he brought someone else and he said, I don't enjoy doing that. So... It's also a matter that you really like 
to be successful, there's a motivation, right? Which is motivation plus ability equals success. So as long as you keep motivated to do what you do, and then you surround yourself with the right people and learn from them because you're doing it for the first time, you will be successful in your role as CEO. This is how I... Have you, does it answer your, your question in a way? And also, for me, being in the front, you know, there are founders that they're, they're, you know, don't enjoy it and don't like the, it. But today, I'm like the only founder in the company and there is no one else. And everyone would like to see me there. So I got used to it. I learned how to enjoy it and hopefully to do a good job in it. So maybe some additional context then too on that question or just you know, to continue the conversation here. So th this was uh, last week I was speaking with an early stage B2B founder in cybersecurity. I was trying to encourage him to say, hey man, you need to be the face of this company. You need to be everywhere. You need to be a thought leader. And he said, Brett, we're selling big enterprise contracts. Enterprise organizations don't give a shit who the founder is. They don't want to see the founder being the face. They just want to know if it can solve their problems and how the solution works. So do you think that it's important to be out there? Do you think enterprise buyers want to see who the face is and who that founder is? I think eventually it cannot hurt, right? So if like you are real consider, let's call them Asaf Rappaport from Wiz. He's a good friend. You should interview him as well. You know, he's the face of the companies and he's like the, you know, the cybersecurity guy in Israel today. So everyone wants to hear his opinion. So, so you, you can really build your own brand if, if you really want to and write articles in entrepreneur.com as I do, etc. So eventually I think you also need to be a role model for this early stage and young entrepreneurs, how to build their company and to make those kind of interviews, which, you know, by the way, I enjoy really still listening to hear other fellow founders, uh, unicorns builders as well. So it's always inspiring to hear those kind of interviews. What's your favorite podcast outside of this show? Of course, do you have a go-to podcast that you like to listen to? Yeah, I still uh, hearing, maybe it's again, the obvious one, but you know, Harry Stebbing and the 20 VCs or the SaaS kind of, uh, so it's really more kind of giving you operational experience and learning from other stories and also uh, all in podcast of, uh, it's really interesting one. Whenever I listen to Harry Stebbings, I just think, shit, I got screwed in life. I, I sure wish I had a pleasant accent like his. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, definitely, yeah. Not like my Israeli accent. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I search your name, when I search the company's name, I find success. There's a lot of stories about fundraising, about growth, and all the amazing things that are happening. And I think that tends to be the case a lot of times with media. Yeah, you know, they they focus on the positive side of entrepreneurship. But what it's I've found is there's always it's not true in my case, by the way. Because I don't know, like it will be interesting for the listener, but in Israel there is a big reforms, you know, political situation that's going on. And I was either stupid or brave to go against it. The first one basically the and then it's created a whole buzz and then the whole People that disagree with me, they when SVB collapsed, we have an exposure there over, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in Burbit and say, hey, uh, Tom Livnick and his company going to collapse because SVP is collapsing and the shareholders should sue him and a lot of crap. And, and, and they said that I'm the Israeli Elon Musk because I want to buy SVB now. A lot of stupid shit that they put out there. So it was funny <laughs> to read it. So, so yeah. Let's talk about that decision then to to take that stance. I think it is very important, you know, in an influential role to have something you believe in, take a stand. And I'm sure when you took that stand, you knew there was going to be 
blowback or you had to at least you probably anticipate there'd be some blowback. So can you just talk us through what happened? And yeah, we don't want to make this like a super political podcast, but just for my own interest, can you try to explain to us what the issue is there in Israel that people are concerned about? Yeah, it's around ruining the democracy, right? So I, I'm 38 years old. I grew in this uh, country. It's at all the bases around democracy, right? And the new reform is basically killing the, the Israeli democracy. And then I told them, I said, this is the, the values I grew up for. This is what I signed up for. This is why I lost friends in the army, right? I've been in full wars. No, this is not that. And then... You know, I said, okay, I should listen to my inner voice. And then I got a call from like the prime time. We want to interview. We know you're, you're smart. You have always something to say and you're not shy about your opinion. So let's have this interview. And then I said, if this reform is going to improve, I'm going to leave Israel, stop paying taxes here. And because I pay tens of millions of dollars in taxes over the years right here, personally, just Tom, not like talking as verbiage. If you add verbiage, it's hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes for all our employees, et cetera. So then, you know, if you want me to live here, this is not the situation. And then I called to all my fellows, unicorn builders, et cetera, and I got everyone really lined up really quickly. And then they started to freight. And then the economy minister, uh, you know, tweeted me, hey, Tom, let's meet. And we met. And then, you know, we, we kept things cooling down and now we're, we're negotiating how to get out of this situation. We are in Israel and I'm positive around it. So we have a big event tomorrow, which I'm speaking after like eight months when I was silent about what, like after this interview. So it's going to be an interesting event tomorrow. Have things calmed down now then it sounds like? A little bit. There's still some proof to be made because they passed a law like really anti-democracy. So there is a big tension now still going on and uh, how to solve. Now, based on everything that you've learned so far, if you reflect on your journey, what have you gotten right? What did you and the Verbit team get right? So I think it's the obvious answer, but it's customer obsession, right? Like being really customer-centric and focus on the customer, having our own unique culture as a company and really like about like hard workers, builders and try to solve things and we can do mentality can do attitude so it's really what makes us unique so i think it's the people the culture and the customer obsession final question let's imagine that you're sitting here talking to an early stage b2b founder what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to them again it's uh, like the obvious one it's all around the the people right so who you hire who you fire who you promote right so make sure that you know, you're not looking for yes men people that are just gonna say yes, whatever you say. The people that are gonna challenge you, they're gonna be better than you. I always hire people that are better than me, smarter than me, more experienced than me, right? So and being coachable, right? So I think don't be Mr. Nor at all. You always need to be a hungry to learn. And this is like still and again, as I said, everything I do, I do it for the first time. And I'm really ambitious and motivated to do it. So this is the secret uh, behind it. And, uh, and choose like good investors that think that this, uh, you know, kind of a marriage and it's really hard to uh, separate unless, you know, there's a big secondary transaction market, you know, like uh, what you used to have in 2021. Now it's almost dead, the secondary market. But yeah, so choose carefully your investors and people you want to hang out with and can help you to build a company rather than ruin your company. Amazing. Well, we are up on time here, so we'll have to wrap. Before we do, if there's any founders listening in that just want to follow along with your company building journey, where should they go? 
Uh, you can email me at tom.verbi.ai. You can add me on LinkedIn. So write me and um, try to make myself available. Say that you listen to this podcast and uh, you want to chat on X and I'll try to make myself available to your listeners. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun and I know the audience is going to love it as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brett. All right. Keep in touch.